Everybody, welcome to the first TMI podcast. I'm Isaac Stubbs. Uh, I'm 20 years old, 21 years old. <laughs> Time just flies by. And I'm here with my friends, Josh and Zach. So I'm Josh Bishop, also 21 years old. I'm Zachary Clough, also newly 21 years old. <laughs> welcome to the club, Zach. Feels so good to be part of the club. Thank you. And... I, let's switch orders. Let's talk a bit about what this is before we even mention the quote, because yeah, and we could set we could set a stage upon a stage in the sequential order. So we're three students at BYU, and um, there's not much to say. This is kind of something that is happening to us. You know, it's molding us into what we need to become. So hopefully we're stepping into a purpose with the podcast, if that makes sense. We are not creating this podcast. We are being created by this podcast. Yes. I can there is a pool on the stage on the stage, and we are about to dive in. There we go. I can definitely vouch for the fact that this is happening to me because I didn't know we would be recording. Zach <laughs> so saw me with my back. He was like, it's going to be a podcast today? I was like, you weren't there last week. It, it, it's, I mean, the, the history, very briefly, is one day... After an event that we should probably get into eventually, because it's rich with meaning, the Halloween uh, wedding celebration mm. uh, put a, put me and some people together, and I was like, I just really liked what Josh was saying. I, I was talking to Josh and Ben first. Ben's not here, but I liked what Josh was saying. I don't even know what we were talking about, like our profession. I think we were in a car on the way back from a church activity, and Josh was like. I mean, I've heard about his liberal arts stuff and all this whatever, <laughs> knowing Swedish and stuff like that. And I was like, this is kind of interesting. And Ben was the same. So I was like, I don't know. I'm always looking for a good egg to crack, I guess. Is that a phrase I could say? Broken, rotten egg to crack. Yeah. <laughs> Discover something new. And I don't know. I, was surra- I wanted to surround myself with rich people. That's the only way you get... Rich, not, not financially. Not rich. financially. None of us are financially rich. We're all college students. In a, in, a, in, a, in a sentimental, intellectual sense. And I figure by surrounding my people like this, surrounding myself with people like this, that, you know, improve. None of us are business majors either, so we're not here to become financially rich. <laughs> we're here because we care about things. Ex- experientially rich, I prefer. Anything to add about what's going on here? Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of in the tradition of, uh, we're going to be talking about C.S. Lewis tonight, and it's kind of in the tradition of him and his friends had this little club called the Inklings. There we go. It was, uh, I think it was him and G.K. Chesterton and Tolkien, and they were kind of the ones who converted him to Christianity at first through their writings, but they had a little intellectual club, and um, this isn't really a club so much as just a discussion group, a Socratic seminar, but we want to talk about important things. That's why it's called TMI, Topics of Moral Import. There we go. Um, we've gone through some different names, but I felt <laughs> like that one was the most applicable. Um, we're going to talk, we're not apologists, but we're going to talk about religious ideas, and we're going to explain why we think what we think, um, because if you can't, um, Something that John Stuart Mill said, that if you can't defend why you believe something, even if you happen to be right, that's just pure chance and is without value or meaning. You should be able to explain the rational bases for your, for your beliefs. But um, 
so this is kind of going to be a little bit apologetic. Um, we're talking about an essay by C.S. Lewis tonight, and there's this quote by one of his contemporaries, Austin Ferrer, Ferrer, something like that. It says, though argument does not create conviction, lack of it destroys belief. What seems to be proved may not be embraced, but what no one shows the ability to defend is quickly abandoned. Rational argument does not create belief, but it maintains a climate in which belief may flourish. So we're hopefully contributing to a climate in which belief may flourish. We are all members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and are going to um, talk about religious and moral and philosophical questions, and we're going to have that, that basis and that background, but we're also going to be open to anything. Um, nothing is... Everything is fair game in this um, discussion group, and we're going to, nothing is taken for granted either. Um, everything, every every belief should be defensible. There we go. Yeah, so hopefully the, if you're listening to this, you can kind of, well, I what you're talking about, you know, religious topics, philosophic, 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 myopic, <laughs> <laughs> philosophical topics, uh, it's just depth. It's like the opposite of small talk. Big talk, one might say. Gigantic talk. Deep talk. Deep talk. So like... Uh, tub talks. We, I think more people would take philosophy classes if they were called big talk. <laughs> big talk. Yeah. And to provide some direction for our big talk discussion, um, we had some source material. Our source material is a sermon called Learning in Wartime, which was... I mean, it's, it's a C.S. Lewis sermon. Uh, thank you, Josh. Josh is our source man <laughs> and biggest C.S. Lew- Lewis fan on our floor, <laughs> likely. Yep. And so. this sermon was given at the Church of St. Mary the Virgin, which is like the central cathedral in Oxford, hence the nature of the sermon, Learning in Wartime. It's in the fall of 1939. It's kind of interesting aging, but it's kept in great detail. So we got all the words we all read it prior to coming here, and I mean, we're gonna we're gonna take it apart. So I mean, this isn't like a prerequisite for listening, but this is a kind of a backbone. And hopefully, if you haven't read it, then you'll be motivated to. Oh, but I wanted to read it, to un- understand like the premise of this is obviously happening during the Great War, and well, just at the start of it, yeah, the start of the Great the, War, kind of on the verge of it. Like Britain's not really in the war yet. At this time, but it's impending. There, you know, a draft is coming, and they all know it. So, and he's he's kind of setting the stage for a bunch of academics in Oxford, and like, what's their role here? He says at the end of this first paragraph, "Why should we? Indeed, how can we continue to take an interest in these placid occupations? Occupations like being a philosopher, a scientist, or a historian, or when, a student, or a student, <laughs> like me." When the lives of our friends and the liberties of Europe are in balance, uh, is it not like fiddling while Rome burns? So that's kind of the problem. Yeah, and it's a problem that's not just for 1939 Europe, and he makes that explicit right off, right off the bat. He says, the war creates no absolutely new situation. It simply aggravates the permanent human situation. And he kind of talks about from... Even a political perspective, there's always some crisis going on. From a moral perspective, there's always souls to be saved. So how can we sit here and focus our energies on the arts, on learning, on science, 
when there's so many people that need our help out there. Yeah, how do you justify anything that seems theologically mundane? How do we justify mm-hmm. entertainment? How do we justify business or philosophy or any of these, you know, why are we not all seminary teachers? Why are we not all permanent right. missionaries, full-time missionaries? Right. Um, how do we just, I mean, I'm studying German, among other things, and that, despite what other Uchtdorf says, is not the <laughs> heavenly language. It really has no lasting consequence other than talking to German people. Um, so how do we justify learning about these kinds of things? How do we justify our passions if they're not, if they don't seem to be theologically mm-hmm. significant compared to the other things going on? You right. know, we believe that we've got this whole gathering of Israel going on, that we've got preparation for the second coming, last days, drastic measures, everything's going on. Mm-hmm. And there are pandemics, moral and you know, physical, biological pandemics to fight, and there are wars in the world, and why are we... Why do we get exhausting our resources? Why are we here? Making is it wrong of me? <laughs> Why are we making a podcast? A major Stranger Things fan, for example. <laughs> Can I, how do I? How do I? Is that true? That? It's true. Wow. It's kind of the only TV series I've. Got I into. did not see that coming, honestly. I'm a movie guy, except for that. They're kind of like movies. The they episodes. Are. So okay, so that's a good question, and it, it's like it's not really a new question. I mean, like it's prompted by the events, but like you can look back in any. Probably, I don't like saying things like that. Let's step into the New Testament for a specific specific example. Mm-hmm. Saul Paul conversion and a very complete uh, devotion to his new ministry. Right? right. You talk about being a full time permanent missionary. There we go. Exactly what. It's exactly right. He's he. I believe is never gets married. Correct. Arguable, but arguable. I, I guess there's no there's no evidence to confirm nor deny that. Uh, he, he does talk now. about. <laughs> there we go. He found his way eventually. But he talks a lot about marriage. I mean, he's a good marriage writer. Uh, Except for the hair length. He's not a fan of long hair. That's true. Yeah. He also doesn't think women speak. <laughs> Maybe that was in some specific context, Josh. I think Paul was good for his time when it comes to marriage. That's he true. He still has some great lasting advice. He know? does. Exactly. He's our only kind of source of the whole marriage between a man and a woman doctrine in the New Testament. That's true. So, but he was but shaped by his circumstances. Yes. We're, aren't we all? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, my, my point is, he's like incredibly devoted. And so let's take an example. Uh, in one of his epistles, he says, well, it's great it, for marriage, for example. He says, it's great if you're not married. Like, that's, that's totally fine. Uh, you can be totally devoted to God and not be married, hence why in Catholicism, celibacy. the highest devotion did generally is indicated by celibacy with nuns and priests, for example. And so you see that, like, that's one <clears throat> minor example of a, okay, well, salvation is the greatest work here, obviously, if that's what I theologically believe, and therefore the highest sh- sign of devotion I could show to God is... A life of complete devotion, celibacy. Which, let's be honest, I mean, nuns and priests have been doing this for like two thousand years. You know, this like we're trying to, we're trying to. Yeah, that's right. But they've you know sworn this life where they're paid by the church in the ministry. That's how they get their livelihood. They live there. That's where they do all their work. There's no romantic relationships, so on and so forth. At least so those are the guidelines set forth. 
True, and Lewis kind of alludes to this idea that, um, so he's talking about how there are different roads to God. Every one of us have a, has a calling, and it's kind of within ourselves to find that calling. It's uh, planted within us in our natural desires and aspirations and abilities and gifts that God has given us. He says, um, there is no appetite that exists, or he says, God makes no appetite in vain. Mm-hmm. He says, the existence of the impulse and the faculty prove that they must have a proper function in God's scheme. And so if we have a passion for these things, then there's they're not entirely purposeless. They could right. be corrupted, they could be misdirected because we are fallen. But, um, but so he's saying we have these different callings or missions, and he's saying the intellectual life is one road to God. Mm-hmm. He says it's not the only road to God, nor the safest, kind of implying that maybe something more like this life of a priest, this celibacy, this whole devotion of another sort is safer. He says, but we find it to be a road, and it may be the appointed road for mm-hmm. us. Speaking from personal experience, maybe, with, in C.S. Lewis's case. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. So, like, I, I guess, I mean, he kind of goes roundabout, honestly, in answering these questions. Like, I, I felt like the first half of the sermon was kind of like laying a foundation. Like, it didn't really directly answer the question. But that that's kind of one specific answer is, we have a faculty for reason slash intellectual pursuits, right? We have a brain. Or, you know, all the things associated with thinking, I should say. And then uh, we have, what is it? It's faculty and... Appetite. Appetite. A fac- and we have an appetite, an intellectual appetite. And I think most people can relate to that. Well, and he says not just our, our inclinations, but also our situation tells us something about the purpose God has for us. Um, not, not that we can't make our own lives, you know, not that self-determination isn't a thing, but, um, for example, he says, if our parents have sent us to Oxford, if our country allows us to remain there, this is prima facie, first-hand evidence that the life which we at any rate can best lead to the glory of God at present is the learned life. So he's saying so- something about our, our situation, our opportunities, you know, it does tell us God has a certain thing in mind for us. And, and he says... Um, no, no career is inherently any better than any other because all of them have to be, he says, they all have to be com- completely consecrated to God. And let me pull it up, find it here. He says, all of our merely natural activities will be accepted if they are offered to God, even the humblest and all of them. And all of them, even the noblest, will be sinful if they are not. Hmm. So we have a mission, but the basic challenge the basic um obligation for each of us is is kind of this more abstract idea of taking your given mission and your destiny it. there we go and okay so then the, this in a way to me i mean this is a dive into subject subjectivism because like let's say there's two kids who get sent to oxford and 1939 happens and one of them says you know my grandpa was in the military, and I might be a super intelligent chemist right now, but I'm going to drop out and, you know, be a marksman in the military or something like that. And the other a one... Marxist? <laughs> a marksman. <laughs> marksman. Um, and the other one is in an almost identical position, but he says, but to serve my country, I'm going to continue practicing chemistry. And by that argument, both are valid, wouldn't you say? I think so, and they can, I would say valid, I would less use the word valid as 
um, well, maybe something like loyal or authentic mm -hmm. about, because it's about the internal experience that they're trying to follow. And it's possible that both of them made the, ra the wrong choice in terms of in some absolute best outcome kind of idea. Mm -hmm. But that given the information, given the, the inclinations and the feelings they had, they were doing the best they could. Right. And um, although I don't know if I necessarily even believe in there being this ultimate Absolute best outcome objective. career that you should have been in kind of thing, <laughs> I think you make the best of what you're given. And, but, I totally So, agree. I mean, it is subjective because it's, it's, it has to be measured against an internal standard. That's what the definition of subjectivity is. Right. Zach? What do you think about? Well, okay, j just in general, like, this is one of the arguments, but I think uh, the one Zach talked about a little bit before we started recording uh, is, in my opinion, like, the most specific answer to the problem, where he says, to be ignorant and simple now, not to be able to meet the enemies on their own ground, would be to throw down our weapons and to betray our uneducated brethren who have, under God, no defense but us against the intellectual attacks of the heathen. Good philosophy must exist, if for no other reason, because bad philosophy needs to be answered. The cool intellect must not work only against cool intellect on the other side, but against the muddy heathen mysticisms which deny intellect altogether. So, like, to me, that's the answer that resonated with me the most, is it's simply to assume that the only thing wrong happening in war is the fact that people are taking weapons to kill other people is kind of a shallow assumption. Like, it is one of, it obviously is a huge pervasive one, which he gets at the idea of that's kind of the, it brings up the most realism. Like, it requires nothing but the animalistic part of you to understand that you're in danger, in physical danger. You know what I mean? Like, e even if you go hunting, you know, have you heard in, I don't know if you guys know about this, but like, in Arkansas and Alabama, when you go shoot hogs, I don't know if you've heard about this. You can take, like, an assault rifle and shoot hogs. So, like, people take, like, an AK-47, and they'll see, like, hogs. Like, they, they're, they're group animals, you know? And then they'll just start unloading on hogs. Because it takes a lot of ammunition to take down. Like, they're kind of, like, they're big, massive, strong animals. Anyways, that's, like, understood by a hog, right, in the same way that we could understand. It's the most rudimentary part of that warfare. But there's many layers to the warfare. Like, what's developing those weapons, for example? Like, that's, that's super clear and obvious. Like, you need uh, the people in the Air Force and the Space Force and scientists working for the missile people to come up with a better missile than the bad guy or else they'll win. Like, that's an obvious use for... You can be intellectual and still contribute to a war effort. Like, that makes a lot of sense to me. Just an op opposing force, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so the parallel for kind of a more spiritual sense is in the war for people's souls there's a lot more to it than just reading your scriptures it's kind of like the quote we used to open this up people are going to be using all the powers of science and sophistry to try to disprove religion and try to destroy belief and we have to have people who are willing to dive into those issues hmm. and keep a faithful outlook on it so we can answer right. those threats. Yeah. Well, I think it's not just about... I mean, learning in wartime is not about learning for wartime. It's not about... He's not making an argument for why being an intellectual can help contribute to the war effort. Mm -hmm. It's 
Why do we continue to care about our everyday activities when faced with an existential crisis? Mm -hmm. Which for them, this was, you know, literally an existential crisis. It's very obvious. The survival of Britain was, um, to most people, obviously in the balance. But um, I think it's an argument that was, that's relevant to us um, with things like we've said, like these big ideas, these grand missions that we have, like how do we continue to live our day-to-day life and... um, and if we were somewhere else, like, you know, in Europe right now, we might be asking this question in a much more existential way. But um, first of all, he says about war, it doesn't really change anything. It just um, kind of accelerates the, mm-hmm. the schedule. You know, every there's a 100% mortality rate. <laughs> I humans. love that. Anyways, <laughs> war doesn't kill anybody extra. In, in it fact, it says it might even reduce your suffering. Like, you could have cancer right. for a few years. Right, he says you're just years. as likely to die a painless death in war as anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Maybe even more so during right. war. Which, I mean, that's could be a little painful. insensitive. <laughs> I mean, it's also horrifying. There's like, a lot of painful Well, and that's that the beauty of a lot of pain. You yeah. get to take horrifying ideas to their logical extremes and, yeah. and see where it takes you. War is horrifying. And, like... We are not pro-war. We are not pro-war <laughs> whatsoever. It's, But I, his point is true, you know. And, and, and he's saying as well, like... You know, it's not just about the fact that you might die in a war. It's the fact that the war disabuses us of this notion that the everyday activities have been what it's about all along. It mm-hmm. reminds us that this, he says, this is a, uh, a pilgrimage and not a permanent city. You know, we're pilgrims here on earth and we're mm-hmm. not doing our everyday activities for their own sake. Mm-hmm. And we need to be disabused of this notion, he says, that um, the animal life in us, the schemes of happiness centered in this world, were doomed to anything other than a final frustration. They, they were always doomed, he says. And so wars and crises are, are terrible, but they do kind of ground us. They kind of remind us, like, you know, life is fragile. Right. Um, and, and it makes you question. You know, he talks about, like, if you die in the war, does it have an impact on your salvation? Are you more likely to die unprepared to meet God in a war than anywhere else. Are you, it says, if anything, it probably makes it more likely because being in a war and thinking about your impending, you know, life or death situation might make you want to be a bit more prepared. Right. Okay, I have I have two kind of big thoughts slash questions slash topics about yeah, let's this. Hear it. So number one, let's talk about, like, I'd like to hear your personal experience, but for example, I've listened to some podcasts about North Korea, which I've always found kind of fascinating. I talk about China. I think about China and North Korea very frequently. <laughs> and, like, the fact that something like a possible Holocaust is happening in North Korea, like mass starvations and things like that. Uh, I don't even know if I should say possible. Like, there there's, seems to be it's substantial evidence. for decades, more or less. So, like, there's, th- those kind of problems are happening. And not only in North Korea, but even with just that isolated example, and there's not just a few people living in North Korea that are affected by this. There's you know millions of people. So I realized, I mean, maybe as a seven or six or seven year old, that shouldn't be the thing on the forefront of my mind. Although that's also kind of debatable because it's on hundreds of thousands of children's minds in North Korea. Uh, but like, if if war, for example, brings you to what's truly important, then in, you know, for, for in my case, you know, 
what I would think of as middle-class American society, do I think about anything that's super important most of the time? Like, I hadn't thought about anything like that. You know what I mean? And I mean, I, I guess, like, my American version of this experience is, for example, I remember going to the Marine Corps Museum in Washington, D.C., and, like, you see the relics and they got the casualty numbers and stuff like that. Like, that's kind of a, it's sobering and, like, reminds you of things that are important. It's a grounding event. But, like... I guess what I'm saying is I don't feel like most of the people around me are thinking about the things of, like, the most importance going on in the world most of the time. I think they're thinking about things that are not so important. What do you think about that? I think that's true. I think it's a a sad trend in society. You know, it's the the famous uh, T.S. Eliot quote, where is the knowledge we have lost where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? We're drowning in information. It's, uh, we actually read a really good article about this for my American politics class, and it talks about how there were these two kind of different dystopian um, themes or ideas presented in the mid-20th century, and one is 1984, where you have like complete government control of information, and mm-hmm. you have complete brainwashing and, and essentially governmental mind control and that kind of stuff. And then you have on the other side, and I've read 1984, but not this other one, which is Aldous Huxley, Huxley's Brave New World. Ooh, that's one of my favorite books. And, and that one, as, as I understand it, as it probably understands better, is that you're going to be drowning in meaningless information. Mm. That's the mm-hmm. other extreme, is that. So either way, the truth is taken away from you. On one hand, it's withheld. On the other hand, it's just buried, totally right. submerged in a flood. You're sedated, of meaningless content um so i do think that's a a really negative trend of our time and we're not spending a lot of time asking ourselves great questions thinking about great ideas Mm -hmm. reading great books um although i do think everyone has experiences in their life that are that are going to cause them to um to take a step back and to right to question the system itself to question the life they've been living and I think, you know, we, we, we can't avoid that. If we live in a first world industrial nation and we've overcome, or at least the higher classes have overcome basic needs, then they instead get mental disorders and all these kinds of things. Right. That are mm-hmm. Primarily prevalent in industrialized advanced society. Right. Yeah. I, I think, uh, like, from a biological perspective, your body is designed to find and eliminate threats, you know? It's not a system designed to have no threats, essentially. Like, if you have no threat, it's just looking for another one, you know? Like, it's, it's a great system. And I think that's like when we've made our top priority threat some, I don't know, uh, unfortunate news about what's happening in entertainment media, you know? And that, that, can, that can give you, you can, it can elicit a serious, you know, emotional reaction. That is just like a great, a, a brave new world um, mm-hmm. type of sedation, you know. I guess we're kind of Matrix talking right now. We've got to step outside of the Matrix, guys. But I, I guess I, here's why this uh, essay is actually really important to this topic. Because the essay is saying, if in the most, from ranging from any type of crisis whether it's your personal crisis or it's a crisis of literal war, you know, of the most real proportions that anyone 
anyone, any animal, even organism could detect, you can still pursue the things that you are designed to pursue, essentially. And so what I'm saying is we shouldn't be afraid. Like the thought of something like North Korea and atrocities happening there doesn't have to be the thing that takes away all the joy in your life. It can actually be something that instills your life with meaning and gives you the greatest possibility, not just to, you know, be some Green Beret agent and go stage a coup in another country or something like that, but instead allows you to be a better father or a better, I don't know, firefighter or what, whatever your occupation is, or whatever your roles are in society, you know? You could, you could be a better anything if you were to focus on the things that were more important. Does that make sense? I think this is one of the ideas that I get from the article. Yes. What's it called? It's not an article. It's not an essay. Sermon. A sermon from this sermon. There we go. Thank you, Brother, brother Josh. <laughs> yeah, you can kind of consecrate anything to God is the idea that he expresses. And I do think it's really interesting when he brings up the idea that, you know, that this stuff would be happening anyway, right? We might be tempted to go devote our whole lives to service, but he kind of says that's not practical for most of us. And if we weren't reading good books, we'd be reading bad books. Mm. If we weren't listening to good music, we'd just end up listening to bad music. And so actually trying in those endeavors to make them worthwhile is to our benefit. I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on, on, on that argument that he makes. Yeah, and he says, uh, he talks about his own conversion, because, you know, Lewis has a really interesting history. He went from born into a Christian, I'm pretty sure it was Anglican family, became an atheist in his teens or so, went to this really crazy school with a headmaster who was later declared to be insane and was imprisoned, um, or at least fired. He might have been in prison, too. He was abusive in any case. But so Lewis went from Christian to atheist to... I wouldn't say he was like a pagan worshiper, but he was certainly like a pagan sympathizer. And he writes about this in his biography. He was really fascinated by Norse theology. And then he becomes a Christian. He's convinced by people like Chesterton and Tolkien. Um, and then he meets his wife very late in his life. She dies after two years of marriage. He kind of loses his faith again as a consequence of that. And then eventually comes back all the stronger. But anyway, so, so Lewis, you know, one of the strongest advocates and apologists for Christianity is a convert. And he, he writes about how in his conversion, he says, I didn't really realize that after conversion, my life would inevitably consist in doing most of the same things I had been doing before. Mm -hmm. And that's how it is for most of us. The, uh, you know, the priest route, the celibacy route, that kind of stuff. It's not possible on a large scale, and he says that. He says, like, even if whether or not it ought to happen, the thing you are recommending is not going to happen. <laughs> and, and he also said, well, he doesn't say this, but the, I, I think it's not possible because, you know, people like priests have to be sustained by others' contributions. Mm -hmm. So most people have to continue to live their normal day-to-day right. -day lives. We couldn't all be a priest, even from an economic sense. Too bad none of us are business majors and can verify that. Fact check it. I, I think don't think it's possible. I, I don't think it's possible. <laughs> well, okay. I think we'd the celibacy farming, is a big hurdle. <laughs> we'd have to be farming Tibetan priests or monks. Yeah, that's true. No, yeah, that's true. They have they have subsistence things. They have systems. Never mind. I, I retract my statement. 
it is... But that's not necessarily what God wants for us. He sent us right. to a material world with basic material... And I'm just a material girl. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. I'm sorry if you were going to continue your thought. This no, is something I was going to... Uh, I was thinking, it's a minor idea. I want to get back to my second big question about what Josh said like 10 minutes ago. Um, the, like, I just want to say, clarify my personal thoughts about the life of complete devotion, which we've kind of labeled synonymous with celibacy. I do think, even within the framework of Lewis's argument, there are paths of celibacy which are valid for some people. Like, like, let's consider in our own theology. If, if we, there are some, for example, I mean, this is what comes to mind, but like every general conference, uh, I mean, the, I say celibacy in the sense that it's happening to you, not that it's something that you have wished upon that's yourself. That's going to be my qualification, is that it's uh, valid, but in, in our theology, at least, it's valid only when involuntary. Hmm. Um, we, have a, <laughs> we have a word for that. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> what did you say? I said on, only incels are allowed in the church. <laughs> that's the only only possible iteration. No, that's true. But you get what I'm saying. There, There is a... But I, I don't think... I mean, that's kind of the basic idea of the church theology. I don't know if it's necessarily comprehensive. I could conceive of, of exceptions. And, um, and and I think there are often exceptions to many of the rules, although it's really more of a postponement. Um, like, for example, I personally believe that C.S. Lewis, I don't know how much he knew about um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I know he knew of it, that it existed. Um, it seems like he kind of dismissed it out of hand because of what he called teetotalism, which is just non-alcoholic, mm -hmm. non-alcoholism non as a requirement for membership. But I think that he was a more powerful advocate for Christianity as an Anglican than he ever could have been as, as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ or as a Mormon because of the prejudices against the Church. And, and also because as an Anglican, he, he really just wrote as a non-denominational Christian. He mm -hmm. was never an advocate of of the Church of England. He was an advocate of Christ. Mm -hmm. But, um, now I forgot what your question was. Oh yeah, okay. Um, about celibacy. Whether or not it's ever again. valid. Is that your question? Yes. I guess you're, I needed to find the nature of celibacy. I mean, yeah, what is valid? Are we saying non-sinful? Is you know, because most people would not say that not getting married is a sin. But what is a sin? It's something that stops your progress. And, and in right. our theology, salvation in the highest degree is, is impossible without marriage and therefore is ultimately a sin. Um, if it impedes your progress. And that, that's my definition of a sin. It's, is anything that impedes your, your progress towards the, your, the ultimate the, the plan of that God has for you. That's interesting thought. And so there are personal sins that would never be a sin for anyone else because it's disobedience to your personal calling or to your personal mm -hmm. mission. Um, and so those are kind of subjective sins. And then there are universal, comprehensive, objective sins, both of commission and omission. Um, so I think, you know, it, anything that the Holy Ghost or that God tells you to do and you don't do it is a sin. So if God tells you to marry someone and you don't do it, 
and perhaps you miss your your only chance for marriage in this life or the the chance in which you could have been the most influential as a as a couple for your family for your children for the world that's a missed opportunity and it's disobedience and is by my definition a sin mm-hmm. um what if you're asked to not marry someone which might be possible you're the whatever god says to you know this kind of seems like uh um, Stepping, appealing this layers is a, this back is here. This is theological questions. <laughs> right. Are things right because God says to do it, or does God ask you to do it because they're right? Right. And I think it's not. It's it's both at the same time. It's uh, Lewis loves to go into these kind of paradoxes, higher dimensional kinds mm-hmm. of things. He's like, he says the same thing about the Trinity. It's not. Um, it's really just something. We're like in a lower dimensional state almost, and we just can't conceive of it. Um, like we we think of it from the perspective of time like one has to have been first this universal standard of right but if it was before god then we're not really unitarians we don't believe in one god we believe in two gods because mm-hmm. there's something to, by which god measures himself this mm-hmm. this standard the second entity in the universe and so we're actually dualists mm-hmm. um on the other hand if god defines what is right then it's arbitrary and and we really have no good reason to follow him other than that he's all-powerful and might punish us right but really, if you get yourself out of the perspective of time, it's really both at the same time. God has always been God. At the same what? <laughs> yes, you're right. At the same, same, there's no time. <laughs> um, anyways, um, so I was just trying to explain. you got to take a few I, steps back to is, explain some things, right? This is something that we kind of take for granted. <laughs> this is a starting point of argument that whatever God says to do, is right, and if you don't do it, that's sin. And um, but I, w- I was just trying to explain that's not arbitrary. God doesn't. Um, we're told in the scriptures He doesn't do anything that's not for our benefit. Right. Without He doesn't. He's never purposeless. He is not capricious. He is not arbitrary. Um, so if God tells you not to marry, so I don't. I don't think in most cases. God doesn't tend to contradict his own revelations, and so I don't think he's going to tell people never get married. He might say, don't marry that person. Mm-hmm. He might say, wait for now. He might say, not in this life. Right. Um, I think which, for a yeah. lot of people, that's the same thing as never get married, because we, right. we're not planning right now for our next lives. Right. Only to get there. But, um, and I think it's admirable. I think if, if I'm a believing Catholic, then the right thing for me to do well, I mean, there are different paths for them as well. You know, the priesthood right. is a path. But like, uh, yeah, you're but not just I'm seen as priest, the most valid. The right thing for me to do is to be celibate. Right. Mm-hmm. And on Judgment Day, the right thing for me to do will have to be true to that celibacy. Right. Even even if God's plan is for that person eventually to be married, and, and they're not, they don't know about that. They can't be judged by that. Yeah, and it's a vow, I believe, which is a whole nother like adds a whole nother layer to the obedience. That's true. You can add. You can create your own additional commandments just by promising to do something. Right. Which it wasn't wrong not to do before, but now that you've promised to do it, it's a sin not mm-hmm. to do it. For example, me drawing a circle of chalk around myself and saying that I'll never leave it. Yeah. <laughs> like we all do. Oh, what an honorable yeah. example. Yeah, that's a conversation for another time but i think that someone um, might have spoken about earlier today in sacrament meeting (laughs) well not that but i think uh the book of mormon is an interesting book um for a discussion of pacifism 
mm-hmm. and 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 War. kind of it's peaceful good. protest, civil disobedience, those kinds of things, like right. in the tradition of MLK, which MLK Day is tomorrow. There so we go. Gonna, but also like Gandhi, um, <clears throat> because we have in the Book of Mormon people who refuse to fight, who lay down and let themselves be slaughtered. Mm-hmm. We have other people who slaughter others, you know, slaughter the non-believers because they're fighting. Um, <clears throat> for that one group, though, they had promised not to fight. Mm-hmm. And, and otherwise, I think it's cowardly and wrong not to defend your family. But if you promise never to pick up a sword again, then that kind of trumps. Right. That's your personal I, commandment. And I guess... And I don't think that's the highest law. I don't think that the highest law is to never fight if you're, you know, if someone is coming in your house with a gun, your highest commitment is not to pacifism or nonviolence. Your highest commitment is to your family and to defend them. Mm-hmm. And the right thing to do is to attack that guy that's coming in your house. Mm-hmm. But in this case, these people had made this covenant that became a personal commandment. But what do you think is the na- the relationship between their covenant? Like, did God have any... Like, I, I've always heard that when it comes to a... The type of promise that can result in sin or non-sin, it's not just a personal commitment to yourself, but has to involve something divine. Well, and by definition, a covenant is something where God sets the terms. Right. It's a promising covenant, I guess. But I do think that you can be inspired to make a covenant, and and you're inspired to make this covenant with terms that God has set. Um, Because it is kind of implied that that was... God's will that they did that, mm-hmm. that they buried their weapons and everything in that. But we don't ever hear the voice of God saying, "Right." You know, they they took it upon themselves to do that. Right. Um, I think we should be careful what we promise. But I think even if better that thou shouldst not vow. Direct um, promise from God or a commandment from God. A promise is still morally binding. Um, there can be different degrees and extents and mm-hmm. situations and everything. Um, I don't think promises... I think breaking a promise is a sin, just like breaking a covenant, although breaking a covenant is a bigger sin. A greater sin. sin. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, you should be a man of your word. And uh, Good general principle. Or woman of your word. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I, I have a big question, Zach. Do you have anything to say before I ask my big question? No, shoot. Okay. <laughs> so, this is like... Oh, my... That was probably so loud. <laughs> Let's drop my phone. Um, okay, so the, this specific, like, it's the concluding few sentences. Um, I'm just going to read them. If we thought we were building up a heaven on earth, if we looked for something that would turn the present world from a place of pilgrimage into a permanent city satisfying the soul of man, we are disillusioned and not a moment too soon. But if we thought that for some souls, and at some times, the life of learning, humbly offered to God, was, in its own small way, one of the appointed approaches to the divine reality and the divine beauty which we hope to enjoy hereafter, we can think so still. Okay, it's literally the concluding line right there. Um, I mean, like, I, the point that you talked about of, I guess, the highest perspective, I totally understand, but... I feel like this is, I mean, I feel like there's a little bit of hyperbole here because there are existing commandments where we should hope for a better world and improve the systems that guide us here and that things should be lasting that we create, hopefully. I mean, if anything, like a lot of, I would say that like 
Abrahamic covenant has to do with like, out of your seed will the nations of the earth be blessed. Like, that's like, it's what he just said is kind of bound in a sense to what happens in mortality. Like you'll have kids that'll be real and physical beings who will do things that bless nations. He even uses the word nations, which who knows what that meant. I don't have the linguistic knowledge to support that it might actually mean something like political influence, you know, like sovereign entities. So I just feel like, I mean, we're at Brigham Young University, for example. I'm a neuroscience major. Like, I'm, I'm not just studying uh, certain things about the brain just so that I'm fulfilling my purpose as a human being. But I hope that the things that I, maybe even to a greater extent, I hope that the things that I do eventually bring success and health and greater life to the people around me. I think so, for sure. Um, it's not only, you know, when God gives us a calling, or when God calls every person at some time in their life, and that's, that's a calling to come to Him. And it's not just about Him taking us as square pegs and finding a square hole to put us in. He's going to reshape us to fit into holes that He has planned. Um, I think that, yeah, as far as hoping for a better world kind of thing and working for a better world... I think it has a dual meaning, because I think on the one hand, it's hoping for a world to come that we cannot bring about ourselves. It's hoping for, in Hebrews is it 12, you've got the people who are hoping for a, a, you know, a holy city. Uh, no, it's Hebrews 11. They were hoping for, well, it's in Hebrews 11, um, hoping for a city which is not of this earth. Um, all the people, he's talking about oh, a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And it's kind of this idea of the divine and heavenly city. It's, it's the life after this life. And that's, that's the one half of hope for a better world. Um, because on the other side, the, we, it's kind of a... I don't know what to call it. It's kind of like a, a hope against hope on the other side, or a... A hope that you almost can't quite entirely believe. Like, we can, we can work for a better world. We can contribute to a better world. But ultimately, peace can be had upon no other principles than those given by the Prince of Peace. And, and, and lasting, you know, the better world. So we can work for it in, in material ways and in medicine. And I think God has inspired doctors and scientists. And I think that, um, you know, for things like mental disorders as much as priesthood blessings and scriptures and prayer, doctors and counseling are manifestations of the atonement of Jesus Christ and of the revelation that God has given to man to help them to be healed. So um, I think all of those things are good and important, but um, how do I say this? I don't, ex I don't, I, I want to work for and contribute to while at the same time knowing that we're not going to have the better world here, not entirely because that's going to be the world that's in which every person knows and follows Jesus Christ, and that's not going to happen until he comes again. Um, and, and so I think that's why that has to have a dual purpose, a dual meaning. I tend to agree with you on that point. I think there's, <laughs> you know, obviously the kingdom of heaven is in heaven, 
but Jesus Christ also says the kingdom of heaven is within us, mm-hmm. right? And when each of us find out and follow God's will for ourselves, then we can start building the better world that we're hoping for in this world. So, Well, in the kingdom of heaven, I actually think I, I remember reading somewhere that another translation of that verse is the kingdom of heaven is among you. It is the church on earth. And, and there's this... Uh, I think it's DNC 45, Doctrine and Covenants 45, um, 65. Yes. Um, the uh, In which the Son of Man shall come down in heaven, clothed in the brightness of his glory, to meet the kingdom of God which is set up on the earth. Wherefore may the kingdom of God go forth, that the kingdom of heaven may come. And so the kingdom of God is kind of the church on the earth, preparing the way for the kingdom of heaven to come, which is when Christ comes again. And um, so I think, yes, it's here on earth, and yes, we're building it up here on earth. Um, and arguably at the end. Right. It's supposed to be here on earth. Exactly. It's the, the celestial kingdom will be here on earth. But I, this is actually a, a, a question I have, an unresolved <laughs> issue. Is like, how do, we, how, how do we hope for a better world when at the same time we have very apocalyptic views about the last days that it's going to be worse than ever before. And on the one hand, we, we always say it's going to be, the world's going to be more wicked than ever before. I don't really think so. I, I still think it's going to be like a, more or less an equal We've talked about balance. this. Like there's going to be more darkness, but also right. more light. It's simply going to be more concentrated and divided and polarized. Right. Um, so I, I don't think it's right to say that the world will be more right. wicked. Maybe you could say you cannot create evil nor, nor create. You cannot neither create nor destroy evil or good. Kind of in the same sense that it's matter. Like there is simply a amount of good and evil in the world and it retains some sort of balance interlocked with itself. Well, I don't know about that because you can imagine like a world of more or less morally neutral beings... And as they progress towards greater enlightenment, they are bringing more light into the world, or at least taking more light into themselves. And there's going to be opposition, greater darkness that will arise. You know, Joseph Smith says, whenever the kingdom of heaven is established on the earth, the kingdom of the devil is set up against it to oppose it. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, there are evil forces on the earth that were not around until the restoration, because they're here to oppose the restoration. Mm-hmm. I think there's always more or less a balance, and, and we know which side is going to come out triumphant. But um, I just think working for this better world is, is, is something I want to do, and yet at the same time something where I kind of doubt that I'm going to have any success because mm-hmm. of the prophecies and predictions about the last days. But, you know, in the same breath that we're told this is the most wicked, wicked and perverse generation we are also told this is the most fruitful of all times of humanity and that that we're the best generation generation we've ever ever had so which i'm by what you just said but by what you just said kind of still makes sense i mean let's say there's a hundred thousand people fifty thousand are evil and fifty thousand are good and they fight each other then now there's there's officially eight billion people did you guys hear about that shoot yeah there's officially eight billion people on earth Let's say there's 4 billion that are good and 4 billion that are bad. Now, you know, you kind of have 4 billion subjective experiences and applications of evil versus 4 billion subjective applications. 
You know what right. I'm saying? Like, I don't think you that could, most people, or I don't think that many, I should say, many or most are evil. Right. You know, like oh yeah, yeah. In the most evil or are misled or different right. things. Right. Um, in the most theoretical example, though, what I'm saying is, you could have a group. The world could become the most wicked and perverse, and also be the most righteous right. and good, and that those ideas could coexist. No, technically. it's true, and and you could have, um, you know, say the youth today are doing the same stupid things more or less as the youth fifty years ago, but they're doing it in the presence of greater temptation and opposition. Then, in that sense, you could say they are more righteous mm-hmm. because you would expect them to be a lot worse off right. than they are. Right. You know? yeah, that's my sense. It doesn't necessarily yeah, mean that they're committing less sin than any previous generation, mm-hmm. but it's like, given the circumstances, mm-hmm. where you're at is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> the more darkness there is, the more we have to try to actually consciously choose mm-hmm. to follow the light, right? Is, is that true with darkness? For example, in the presence of more light, do you have to choose to be more? I think it's Probably, yeah. That's kind of interesting, I think. Like, are you thinking like the physical light, darkness kind of thing? No, no, you're no. Not, you're not overanalyzing my metaphor here. <laughs> no, I just, I've never thought about it that way. I guess like, because, I mean, this is totally off topic. I don't even know if I want to talk about this. I'll just say it. There is no on topic. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. <laughs> I'm stepping into Eventually, the topic I was destined to, to reach. <laughs> like... Uh, this is just another notion of good and evil, but like that evil is the way you find yourself if you do nothing and good is in resistance. I think this is not true. What I just said. Well, let, let me let me say something really I fast. I think about that this. could be a valid definition of evil. But then you'd have to use that word consistently. Okay, it's it's like, yeah, is, you're right. This is, is semantics, evil? but like this is from my personal perspective. What I just said is not true. This is what's true. It's what Aristotle said: moral virtue is a mean between two vices, that of excess and that of defect. So, I would say, uh, okay, this is something interesting. This is something really interesting. That I'd like to hear your take on. It's com- it's a complete departure from the essay, but let me say. What I just meant was, uh, if you let everything happen to you, and you do absolutely nothing, that is defective. Or I would say that that's some form of evil. Sloth, right? Isn't that one of the seven deadly sins? Slothfulness. But then another one would be to imagine as if you had control over every aspect of your life and acted in accordance. Which I would also say is probably a sin. Like, there has to be... Pride. Yes. Another of the deadly sins that you are the one the captain of your soul yeah well I mean yeah that's a who wrote that poem Invictus by Invictus yes oh I love that uh, yeah um, well actually I haven't seen the whole thing but I've seen that it's a great poem who wrote that it's interesting Invictus William um, William I don't know if you know yeah let's see who wrote oh my wait oh my gosh it's William something um Henley Henley. William Henley I beat you but so Anyways, Invictus is this idea, I am the captain of my soul. It's kind of an interesting piece of church history. One of our apostles, who is also a really famous poet, um, oh, who is it now? Early 1900s poet apostle. Um, mm. It's kind of niche right there. Yeah, I haven't taken a class on that yet. It's, uh, 
Oh man, it's on the tip of my tongue. While you talk, I'm gonna drink um, some water as far away anyways, from the camera you know, as possible. <laughs> I mean the camera, goodness gracious, the mic. Here, here we have it. Um, Orson F. Whitney. Orson F. Whitney. So he was an apostle and he was a very poetic apostle. He actually wrote a response to Invictus. A response to Invictus? A poetic response to Unbelievable. Invictus. Um, you are the captain of my soul. That, I'll just read the last stanza here. Bend to the dust that head unbowed. So he's quoting from Invictus. Mm -hmm. Quotes, quotes, head unbowed. Um, Bend to the dust that head un unbowed. Small part of life's great whole. And see in him and him alone the captain of thy soul. It's about recognizing Jesus Christ as the captain. Author and finisher of your you know, faith. Right. He is the, the, the captain of our salvation. He's right. entered before us into the, into the Holy of Holies. I agree he's the captain of our salvation. Captain of your soul, though, that's... That, that is what it means to let God prevail. Mm -hmm. That's a little strange. What do we... Do, you evolve to the, do we all evolve to the same thing with the same captain? That's another thing Lewis addresses, but before we get into that... <laughs> um, where, we, there was something we were on before Invictus. What were we saying? We were talking. I mean, we can go back to Lewis. Balance. Is, we were talking about balance and Aristotle. Um, nature of evil. Right. Where were you trying to go with Defect. that? Defect. Well, I was, just, I was just saying, correcting myself and saying that balance is where the, the true good lies in every sense. Not complete control of your I life. That's true. Neither complete submission. Which, I mean, there, right. there it is. If that's true. Either complete license or complete predetermination. Right. Right? It's going to be somewhere between the two. Right. Which is this foreordination, not predetermination. Right. It's agency and purpose. Mm -hmm. Agency and inspiration. Agency and direction. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the... Honestly, that's the hardest thing about religion in general, is the fact that truth is only ever found in the balance. And right. So Generally, it means that it's always paradoxical, which right. is so difficult for us right. to It's, you know, comprehend. justice and mercy... Um, love, God's love, and the mm -hmm. allowance of pain. Mm -hmm. It's uh, individualism versus what Zion, one yeah, heart, one mind. Yeah, right. Agency and authoritative church direction, mm -hmm. and and obedience to church leaders and that kind of stuff. And I think it was uh, Rousseau who says that any virtue taken is the same thing as Aristotle. Any virtue taken to its extreme becomes a vice. Mm -hmm. um, now, as far as whether we're all going to become little mirror, mirror Jesuses if we follow him as the captain of our soul, um, I think it was in this essay where Lewis says, you know, Christ is the, what does he say? The, the individuality, the aloneness of Christ consists not in his being a prodigy but a pioneer. It's somewhere in this essay. Do you guys remember those words? Does that sound familiar? That was in this essay? Um, no, sorry, actually, that was in a different book. No, I don't think that's in today. this essay. It's it was in Miracles by C.S. Lewis. Um, let me pull up the quote. Great hockey movie. C.S. <laughs> Lewis. Not a hockey fan myself, but we watched that for Zone Conference one. This is, I love this quote. Um... <laughs> says, Christ's isolation is not that of a prodigy, but of a pioneer. He is the first of his kind. He will not be the last. 
And so we're meant to become like him, but he, in another place, he addresses this idea that we're all going to become identical and lose mm. our individuality. Mm-hmm. And he compares it to um, Plato's cave allegory about people sitting in a dark cave and looking at their shadows. We've been here before, Josh. We have. <laughs> but long story short is that people sitting in the cave being told that they should come out into the light, the light of Christ, you know, embracing the gospel might think that it's going to make them all look the same, when in reality we know that coming out of the shadows into the light is actually going to enhance their individuality and their differences. Mm -hmm. And so we become more individual, not less in Christ. And you'll notice that everyone in the world is more or less, or they're very similar. Mm -hmm. The more worldly you are, the more identical you become. Mm -hmm. You know, you become the... You may have an illusion of identity. You know, it's the... But I mean, I, I can I kind of also say the same thing about, I mean, as from a, my own personal mortal perspective, I look at lots of general authorities, for example, and they have the same haircuts even. That's true. And I think, I, I, I tend to, I believe in the church, I do not believe in church culture, I should say. Which, and that, that is the worldly thing that always tags along inevitably right. with that any community our, that also gives us a false you know, this notion is our, of identity, it perhaps. Is, it is something that we need to battle. Not that it's inherently wrong, but it is wrong if we begin to think that it's inherently right. Mm-hmm. Because it's just a arbitrary addition, um, which often they're necessary for order and, you know, from like an administrative standpoint. Um, but... The, it's the, you know, neither add to nor take from mm-hmm. the word, the gospel. Um, sometimes we add to it. Right. And, and and so I don't think there is any divine haircut or... Um, <laughs> Submission presidents would we disagree. We have an honor code here that would disagree. <laughs> I, I don't agree with that. We'll have a whole honor code episode. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That'd be we'll kind of fun. We'll invite Ben Shalati. Do you know him? No, who's that? He's from the honor code office. He's really? really interesting. He does... He has a podcast because he is homosexual and talks about it a lot and his experiences with that. What? A fellow podcaster? Yeah. Okay, but let's save it because I'm growing out my hair. (laughs) It's got to be nice and long by the time he comes in. We'll tell him to bring his scissors, Zach. (laughs) (laughs) To cut up your card. Your your campus card, not your hair. Just take one corner off, though. (laughs) But um, I think it's true that, you know, from outside the church, they might have the same perspective of us here. All the same. You know, you all watch the same movies because none of you are allowed to watch mm-hmm. rated R movies. You play the same board and, games on Friday nights. Right, and and, and it's it's true, but I, that's not, I mean, it is true to an extent, um, and it's lamentable, and it's not the nature of the gospel. It is just yeah. the nature of church culture, um, and I think that we're seeing changes to that as the church spreads throughout, throughout mm-hmm. the world. It's more of a problem when it was only here in Utah, like. Now we have the need for the strength of youth, right. for example, that is very broad, mm-hmm. adaptable, principle-based, and is no longer President Kimball's principles for the youth of Utah. <laughs> right, and like, uh, and also like, you're completely right. If if you, imagine you have a church population and it exists, ninety percent of its population exists within like a two hundred square mile radius. Then kind of, I understand why it becomes the thing that it becomes. And I understand why the nature of it would be changing right now because of the nature of its population, you know? It, it is following uh, a normal order of events, one would say, from uh, this particular perspective. 
Okay. I have something else to talk about, but you can find whatever you're going to find it's, first. It's going to take a minute, so go ahead. Okay. Well, so I, w- I want to stretch this to an uncomfortable conclusion. <laughs> so this idea of uh, the best possible virtue is at the center, you know. Um, so name, I, ha- I did this thought experiment on my own, so I'm just going to see if it works with you guys as well. Tell me your favorite villains. I'm not looking for any particular favorite answer. Villains. There's no particular answer. I'm looking for. You know what? One of my favorite villains was uh, from Les Miserables. And obviously, this is recency bias because I just Javert. finished it a month or two. Javert, he's really he interesting. He's a singer in that movie. <laughs> Why do you like him? Never seen the movie, but he's kind of a... He's a very well-fleshed-out villain who has some admirable qualities Mm -hmm. as well as some villainous qualities. And his villainousness more... It's not necessarily that he's straight-up evil. It's just that he's very, very rigid Mm. in his moral... Perfect. Perfect. Okay. I, I do know who you're referencing. I've never seen the movie nor read the book. Well, and he, he's I, totally I've admirable. Like, yeah, I scenes. love Javert. He's a like, beast. He's, I only listen to the Javert songs from that musical. Literally. <laughs> it says a lot about him, Josh. Him and <laughs> Jean Valjean in the back and forth. By. I mean, it's really because I really like the actor's voice for Javert. He has a very unique style. But um, because he, he appeals to this very attractive desire inclination within us that does want to go away from the balance into the extreme because extremes are easier mm-hmm. it's the it's the uh the inerrancy extreme the inerrancy of the bible the infallibility of prophets the literal interpretation of the bible and there's no evolution and there's no dinosaurs and there's no, you know that yeah. kind of stuff that that's that extreme and it's the he says he sings a song about stars he says you're the sentinels you never deviate from your courses um and if someone sins, they're cast out of heaven and they mm-hmm. fall with fire as Lucifer did. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful and I love it. But sadly, it is a little bit extreme. Um, and, and the other extreme, you know, I think whether or not someone's like Democratic or Republican, for example, really just has to do with which of the two extremes that appeals to them more. The, the extreme of um, no boundaries are the extreme of complete prescriptive boundaries because mm-hmm. both of them provide a feeling of safeness. Mm-hmm. But, um, so I love, I love the choice of Javier. As for my villain... Um, okay, before we move on from Javier, yeah, 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 yeah. one sentence, what makes him a villain? What makes him a villain? If you had one sentence to describe it. I think what makes him... A villain, it, I mean, it's what we've been saying. It's, I mean, he kind of puts his faith in the wrong thing. He puts his faith mm. in the law and holds that up as something infallible. Mm. Well, and he's a villain because he stands in opposition to the That's hero. also true. <laughs> <laughs> From morale to... He maybe does for, keep getting in Jean Valjean's right. way. He's better off than most of the people. Like, he's like the second best person in the movie. Like, you know, Jean Valjean is the hero, Javert is the villain, but everyone else is just worse than both of them. Um, what about the guy who gives him the... Okay, you know, the priest is probably... He's, he's, <laughs> he's got to be the best guy. I take it, he's We're back to one. priest. Yeah, he is. <laughs> priest is number one. Okay, favorite villain, Josh. I don't... Oh, man. Don't, don't tell me your favorite. Just tell me what comes to your mind when I say villain. I, know, I can't... Th- I'm, I'm thinking I... Um, 
I can't even think of things I watch that. I mean, I like. Only one I can think of is Thanos. Tell me why Thanos is a villain. Um. Well, he's a villain because he mistakes a means for an end. I would say is the. Uh, you know, it's for for him. Man is for order, and societal. Um, you know the the orderly progression of society, and you know, so man is for order, not order is for man, mm. kind of thing. Um, I feel like I've got better villains in there somewhere, but he's well, the only one I can think of. Okay, right now let, let me let me just rapid fire some of why I brought this up. So, you actually brought two really good example provers, which are um, the villain of order, is what I would call them, is one that tries to put things back in place. The best is Lord Business from the Lego movie. He is the ultimate villain of order, right? With the craggle, to put everything in its perfect place, make sure everyone's playing their perfect role, you know? And so there's plenty of order uh, villains of order. And let's talk real life. A real-life villain of order might be a Joseph Stalin or a Hitler, for example. Like the purification narrative or the set and order narrative, you know what I mean? That their villain narrative has to do with the excess, the excess of order. Uh, right. In, every every villain who's ever had a major following has had some kind of utopian idea. Right. Right. They were, and then, even if it's corrupt, it was it, right. it was it was a motivating factor for their followers. Yes. Even in a minor example, cult leaders and stuff like that have some some sense of this. Although sometimes I'd say those might have uh, more of what I would describe as the villain of chaos. So the Joker, for example, like some men just want to watch the world burn. Right. Like. He actually, the reason he's bad is because he takes everything out of its place. And so, it, like, I, I don't think those villains would have much affinity for each other. You know what I mean? Like, they actually, to each other, might be the villain. Um, yeah, let me, let me interject here. Have either of you read Mistborn? Yes. Yes, yeah. So I think um, if we take Brandon Sanderson's universe and put it into our universe, or compare the two... Welcome to neither, a BYU podcast. <laughs> yeah, I think that neither ruin nor preservation is God, and neither is Satan. Satan is not ruin, and God is not preservation, because these are two extremes, and God is balance. God is harmony, right? Yeah. God is going to be the combination of the two, because death is part of God's plan, but so is eternal life. Um, always, the, this is also for miracles, but... Lewis says that Satan, or God took Satan's weapon and twisted it out of his hands, and now it's his own purpose, death. Mm. Satan wanted to bring about death, but God has a, has a part for it in the plan. Mm. So Satan is, I don't know where he fits in. because. So this is the obvious is conclusion. Chaos? Is he Right. Like, this is obviously where, when, when you talk about this, you when you find out that the Joker and Thanos would actually be enemies, it kind of questions your thought of like, okay, well then, but they're both a bad guy. Like, right. like they would both try well, to eliminate they, they each would, other. Satan would fall into either of those. I think, I think you could. God is harmony or balance in this whole Brandon Sanderson narrative, and then Satan is not ruin but odium, right? Mm-hmm. He's he's essentially imbalance. Right. He wants to. He's imbalance. He, he'll go to either extreme. It's it's completely irrelevant. Exactly. To you're at, so long as you're away from God. Now I think this is a conclusion that makes a lot of sense intellectually, but it's very difficult to grasp and apply as a person yeah. because the we never have written 
that God is a God of chaos, right? Which, I mean, that seems kind of... We do have our God is a consuming fire. Okay. In Hebrews 12. God, God and fire. That's actually a great point. Fire is probably the most chaotic force. Like, it's the most natural chaotic force. Get the reference. Come on, Jamie. Hebrews 12. <laughs> I, I love this scripture, actually. I have like 16 things referenced to it. Hebrews twelve twenty nine. for our God is a consuming Okay, fire. give me the context. Is it consuming something to purify? Yes. Okay. So Those th- things that cannot be shaken may remain. Now, when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part will be done away. That's still a chaotic force. Even, even though it's purifying, it's still a chaotic force. So you're, you're, you are pointing out something that I feel like I've missed, which is... Well, I would say destructive, but not chaotic. But that's just semantics. Okay. Well, uh, I'm, what I'm saying is... Uh, God is, I think, the, the kind of force that brings you to harmony. Which, if God can restore the Joker to harmony, and he can restore Thanos to harmony... You know, and they could both stand up, be the stand-in for the metaphorical villain of chaos and villain of order. Then he must be able to play both sides, right? Like God must be able to inspire chaos in someone who's overly orderly in order to bring them to the proper harmony and repentance, and play the opposite side. And that's a very uncomfortable idea. So, like, let's take a societal trend. Maybe the one of the most subjectively conservative times in LDS church history would be 60s, 70s, and early 80s, I would say. Where... Yeah. I, I say got, subjectively no, because... No, totally, like, we got the McConkie, Joseph Fielding Smith, right. Spencer Kimball, very prescriptive, very um, uncompromising. Right. This is the anti-communism, anti-evolution. Right. So you, it's very obvious what in society might have made. And this might, I, I would say this isn't just an uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints thing. There's a trend in most organized Christian religions to build up the God of order in response to the villain of chaos that they saw emerging. Absolutely. It was, yeah. a, it was a response to Darwinism and to social Darwinism and... You know, like, Hippies. a lot of the, uh, this is one of my favorite topics, a lot of the, the church doctrine on, like, anti-evolution, for example, actually came from Seventh-day Adventist writers, and also from this one guy named George McCready Price, which, he might have been a Seventh-day Adventist, too. Um, he's just a, he's a young earth creationist mm-hmm. kind of person. He writes a book, there's actually a mass, and this is... In our in our still standard current edition of the uh, the Old Testament Institute Manual, which in many countries and many languages is, is the best resource they have for what is the church's official interpretation of the Old Testament, because most of their resources and most of BYU studies and all that is not available to them in their language. So this is still it's from this it's from like 1990 or maybe even earlier. Um, in fact, it, it might be like 1970, but. Um, it's still current. It hasn't been updated, and it includes like on the Genesis chapters. There's a humongous excerpt from a Seventh Day Adventist booklet about it's totally anti Young Earth, anti, or sorry, it's anti. It it is Young Earth and anti evolution, mm-hmm. and so we were. I mean, we were taking from other Christian de- denominations at this time, 
and we've taken from other Christian denominations and gone a bit further on the idea of the inerrancy of the Bible than we should have, in my opinion, and on the infallibility of prophets than, than we should have, because that's not anywhere in our doctrine, mm-hmm. but it, it is in our culture. Right. And I think that's still a vestigial structure from that mm-hmm. age. Appropriate metaphor. Yes, very appropriate. Well, okay, this makes sense to you. So anyways, why? what, what are you saying about the 60s? Well, and- uh, well all I was saying was, like, uh, it makes sense why you would build up the kind of God of order mm-hmm. and why, I mean, who can blame? It's a slow system just as parliament or any good legislative system, for example, is a slow system designed to retain the structure of a past which might be outdated but prevent new structures from and systems from Has to change intruding. too quickly. Right. And so... Uh, which almost always means a little bit slower than we'd like. Right. Yeah. But which, is <laughs> which which leans on the side of conservatism, uh, a slow a slower change system, you know, from not and I'm not just saying from a strictly polit- political, but the definition of conservative, you know. No, absolutely. Like we conserve what we have. Like we think about just the scriptures. Almost all of our modern day revelation is from, you know, a couple of decades when Joseph Smith was mm-hmm. alive, and there've been like two editions since. We're right. not really expanding the canon very much. Right. Um, and, and so, given that that kind of defines everything else we do, it's inherently conservative. Right. Because it's inherently... You're kind of conserving. Yeah, exactly. And so, I think uh, both... So let's, on an individual perspective, you as a person, as a follower of Christ, have to recognize God might come to you in a form of chaos or in a form of order, which... It's difficult considering, for like in my personal experience, I felt like if God came to into me, if God came to me in some type of chaotic form, it would be like not a divine uh, resource. Because what I had heard was God was the thing that would always restore me to a point of order. And Which, when you when you say that, sorry, I just where my mind goes is God might tell you what to do. In an orderly way, you might say, this is what's right. Or he might leave you on your own a little bit. Right. That's kind of the chaotic side. Is that... Yeah, well, okay, let's... So let me talk a specific example. You are a uh, missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day mm-hmm. Saints. And you've been a missionary for a year, so you're somewhat experienced. You have a leadership role, and you find it your duty. You feel like it would make you better and happier, or for whatever reason. Maybe it's not that good of a reason. You decide to enforce the rules more specifically with, within your companionship mm-hmm. and other groups that you might be over. And you would never, you would see any threat to that. For example, hey man, you got to let people be a little bit more free, even if it came from somebody like a higher authority, you know. Like you, you need to let people make their decisions more. You don't have to set their goals for them, which these are some of the things that I feel like are uh, you might interact with. Like, it would be not uncommon to interact with as a missionary. Sources of chaos is what I would say. You need to let people get a step outside of your frame for them. That you would be incapable of seeing that as a divine resource because of your notion that God is only a God of order. And the same is true on the opposite side, but I think that happens like much less frequent frequently. Also, I think... Uh, so a force of chaos for example 
I talked about this today. Saul to Paul transition, Acts chapter 9. Saul encounters the divine, and I think that's probably the most chaotic event of his entire life. It shakes up more things than ever. But all it is is Jesus giving him an instruction of truth, which is pretty orderly, I would say. You know, Jesus saying, hey, you've done the wrong thing. This was the right thing. And that was chaotic in his life. This is kind of interesting. Like, it's kind of like, who's, who's the mustached car in cars? Doc Hudson? <laughs> it's like Doc Hudson telling you to turn right to go left, you know? It's like, be more orderly to burn away chaotically yeah, all the God things wrong the with you. God will be the counterbalance. Yeah. He will be the balancing force to... He's going to disabuse you somehow. He is going to disabuse you of your false notions about him, whichever side they're on, whichever extreme they tend towards. Right. And, and that's what Joseph Smith did, too. Like, there's some really kind of insane anecdotes about him. Like, one time he dresses up as, like, a, just, like, this homeless guy shows up at the docks to greet, <laughs> some, I've heard this story. To greet some incoming saints from England. He's like, so tell me about this Joe Smith. They're like, um, how do you know he's a prophet? You've never met him. Mm-hmm. And, and then he's like, and I forgot what the guy's response is, but then he's like, well, what if I told you I was Joe Smith? And then the... Um, you know, the immigrant, the convert says, well, then I know that you're a prophet of God. And then he's like, yeah, it's me. I just wanted to make sure you didn't have any ideas about how I was going to look. I was going to be some princely character that, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not, I'm not infallible. And another time, this Jewish guy, he's like, like Joshua, the Jewish priest or something like that, comes to Joseph Smith's house and, and he's got his own idea of what religiosity is. Um, there's a talk about this by Trinity Madsen, but he, um, it's so funny. It's like, he like, some people, in the, in the 1800s, people used to preach and they would get like really loud and high-pitched and nasally. And so he, this guy comes into Joseph Smith's house and he's got something like, do I have the privilege of laying my optics on a prophet of God? Or something like that. And Joseph Smith's like, you do indeed. Do you want to wrestle? <laughs> so he, and he said it himself. He's like, you know, got to go around disabusing people of these ideas. You know, he, he intentionally did things to make people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Right. Because they were coming from all these different Christian churches. Right. And they needed to, you know, he's just kind of like... He used uh, an extreme force to, to level like it. You, slap yourself, you got to slap yourself silly in order to think straight sometimes. Mm. Is that how it goes? <laughs> it is how it goes. That's, that's really good. I really need to compile all of my C.S. Lewis quotes somewhere because that's also by him. We're learning a lot. This is our first podcast. Yeah. What do you think we try to go like seven more minutes? Seven more minutes? Sounds about right. What does that put us at? One hour and 30 hour, minutes. Hour 30, exactly. Well, that's a nice round number, I think. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. But, um, so I think that's absolutely true. God will be the counterbalancing force of chaos or order. You know, if he... Uh, if we're very um, do your own thing, okay, kind of okay. free approach, he's going to be the force of order. Right. He's going to impose order, and if we are the tending towards the extreme fundamentalist, absolutist approach, he's going to surprise us with imperfect leaders and decisions we don't agree with, and bishops who challenge us, and those kinds of things. Right. Okay. This so you just reminded me of something interesting. So, 
I find that a great foil for Western religion is generally Eastern religion to like reveal good and important things to each other. And um, like the notion of balance, for example, is much more prevalent in lots of Eastern religions than it is in Western religion. And so let's say, no, let's not say, this is true. We're all constantly imbalanced. No one reaches the perfect balance. That means God is the perfectly balanced force. But when he manifests himself to you from your subjective experience, he is always either more ordered or less ordered. I should say more ordered or more chaotic than you. Does that make sense? In relation to you, God is always facing one side of the extreme. So balance is our goal. But it's completely invisible when we look to God for balance. Does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah. From our perspective, on either side of of God, you know, he's he's it's he's always going to seem too chaotic or too orderly or right. too whatever. Honestly. Word. <laughs> Word. Yeah. That's all I, I do want to kind of bring this like to the back to learning of the essay, right? Obviously, there are two extremes, which is you know to be completely wrapped up in artistic or intellectual pursuits, or to eschew them completely. Um, I don't know. What do you, where do you think the balance lies? Where does the balance lie between those? How do we find it? I mean, we have an example of perfect balance. A more, or the best mortal example that we have is the Savior, who, oh my gosh, I love talking about this, in his interactions with people, seems very favorable to certain approaches with different people. Like to find the balance for the adulteress, it was a simple, cast everyone out, it's just you and her, an intimate setting, I forgive you, it's going to be okay, consolation, I need you to do the best you possibly can. Go and sin no more. And then in Matthew 24, just complete obliteration for a chapter in 25 of people who were convinced that they were in the right and that they had the right signs for the Messiah. And he just tears them down, you know, in an open and public setting with intellectual arguments, with spiritual arguments, you know. And they're both, you're looking at the kind of person who's perfectly balanced and that's how he chooses to interact with people. Right, and if you... you, uh... Like Watch the Chosen, for example, they do a great job at depicting this, how he's got to, basically, he has come and he's different than anything before, and therefore he has to stand in opposition to everything that's been before, mm. you know? Um, and so he's got to challenge the assumptions of the Pharisees and the Jews and the Romans and the Zealots and everyone else all at the same time. He's got mm-hmm. to simultaneously disabuse every one of them or their of their right you know and so like he he does things the same way that Joseph Smith uh, did or rather Joseph Smith did as Christ did mm-hmm. but he did things intentionally just to force people to get over some of their their assumptions and their requirements that they had for Christ you know like eating the grain on Sunday like some of the right. things were not necessary but he did it just to show that they were that you know the the rules were a little bit they were they were mistaken as an end in in themselves. Right. Um, I do like the thing about Eastern religions balancing 
I think that's true as well. I think God has a purpose. You know, there's a statement from the First Presidency that God inspired the other major religious leaders mm-hmm. of the world. Muhammad, Confucius. And Confucius and his people. And they obviously, some people are meant to be Muslims and Buddhists and Confucianists if God inspired these leaders. And, you know, to every nation in its own time, its own amount. Um, there's a really great amazing article by a famous famous Jewish rabbi named Joshua Abraham Heschel called No Religion is an Island and he talks about this and God has a purpose in every religion if he's been if he's had a hand in making them mm-hmm. and then maybe that's one of the purposes is to balance out the legalism of Christianity with these Eastern religions right. and, and the beauty and the simplicity of Buddhism and meditation and and, and also there's an interesting passage from that essay right here, um, and this will be my last contribution okay. for this That's extremely okay. long podcast. But, um, <laughs> Heschel says, is it really our desire to build a monolithic society, one party, one view, one leader, and no opposition? Is religious uniformity desirable or even possible? Has it really proved to be a blessing for a country when all of its citizens belong to one denomination? Or has any denomination attained a spiritual climax when it had the adherence of the entire population? Does not the task of preparing the kingdom of God require a diversity of talents, a variety of rituals, soul-searching, as well as opposition? And so the fact that, um, I don't think we have an option, really, in the matter anyways. The Church of Jesus Christ is never going to be a majority on the earth. Mm-hmm. It will grow. I, there are different predictions as to how much it will grow, but I don't think it will ever be a majority, except in localized regions. Um, the gospel has to go to the whole world, yes, to every country, yes, but it's the uh, one of a city and two of a family, you know. Um, but I don't think even if it were possible, it wouldn't necessarily be desirable. Um, that might be the very thing that would lead to, you know, it was when Rome adopted Christianity, that's when some of the worst apostasy came in, is when mm. it becomes general and sponsored. Mm. Um, so I think it's good. I think persecution is has more positive effects than negative, actually, mm. because it requires us to think about our faith. It requires us to have reasons for what we believe. Kind of like not just to be accidentally impending war. Um, yeah. Let me go back to this. I said this was the last one, but one more. <laughs> yeah, you you haven't stopped your thought. You're not contradicting anything. Because um, I love this one by by Mill, John Stuart Mill. Amazing philosopher. Um, incidentally, one of the earliest um, feminist philosophers. There we go. Um, in the not in the extreme sense. That Episode that, coming not soon. Not that word has today, but in the uh, equality sense. Um, but so he he says. So assuming that the true opinion abides in the mind but abides as a prejudice, a belief independent of and proof against argument. This is not the way in which truth ought to be held by a rational being. This is not knowing the truth. Truth thus held is but one superstition the more, accidentally clinging to words which enunciate the truth. So essentially what he's saying is accidentally happening to believe something that's right will do you no good if you don't have a reason for it, if you don't have faith, if you don't have personal experiences. Um, you know, and, and 
for the most part, that's true. And in, in the salvatory eternal sense, I think that's true. I think you might have some, you know, if you belong to a, um, if you happen to live in a society where socially things are just better, um, you'll get these incidental material benefits. And, and if we, which we do, if we believe that living the gospel also will improve the rest of your life, you're going to get those incidental benefits. Being born in the church is not a disadvantage. It's an advantage, in my opinion. If the, tr- if the church is true, it's not better to be a convert than to... Uh, well, you know, God has a plan for everyone, but, you know, as members of the church, you don't want your children to be born out of the church. You're not going to send them off to be adopted in some foreign country so they can discover the gospel on their own and choose for themselves. They can still choose for themselves as born and raised in the church. And they're going to have some incidental benefits just of the fact that, they, that they've got this truth in their life, even if they don't yet know that it's true. You know, like their parents are not going to be alcoholics and they're going to have a good society, good neighborhood, these kinds of things. But ultimately, just because you happen to belong to the right denomination is really no better than any other church unless you know unless you have a reason for your belief because God is not going to judge us based on accidentals based on um, yeah I can't think of the word but happenstance Right. nobody can be judged that way you can only be judged on the exercise of your will and the implementation of your rationality um, so I very strongly agree with what, what, what Mill said and I don't think um you know, like, I don't think it's any good to believe in Christ over Muhammad if you can't explain why. Hmm. And that's why we're making this podcast. <laughs> Thank you for being with us for the last hour and a half. <laughs> Hopefully you broke this up into digestible portions. <laughs> anyone out there who listened to the whole hour and a half, I salute you. Join us next time. This is a big in deal. In person, if you were here for the whole hour and a half, we want you in this room talking. <laughs> this is a big deal because this is the first time we've done this, so I'm sure we made a lot of mistakes in every facet, and we will every episode, but I honestly had a great time. Same. Comment, like, and subscribe. <laughs> Do all the Challenge fun us. Stuff. Draw your Tell own conclusions. and Disprove us. Yeah, fact check us, please. We're still working on that. Um... Not just fact check us, opinion check us. Too. Opinion check us. Build up our subjective armor. <laughs> Make us stronger. Well, there you have it. I'm Isaac. Zach. Josh. And that was the TMI podcast. <laughs>